Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation with Shirley. I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, Welcome to Conspiranormal with your host, Adam Sane, co-host yep. Jeff, and producer Rob. Can't forget about producer Rob. Producer yeah. Rob. The He's silent the partner. Man. It's so sometimes. Hard. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. It, it's so hard not to call you Rob Arena. <laughs> and we have Luke in the studio, guys. Hey, Luke. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's not here. I need, oh. to, I need to get the crickets on my phone. <laughs> 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 well for a second i was like where's he going with that <laughs> he doesn't know luke's not really here right yeah. <laughs> well you have a mic set up well, but there's just well yeah i mean he's here in spirit always we just need like a mannequin over there in the shape of luke maybe like a cardboard cutout the metal shirt. i mean he could still show up I, I always you know there's always hold out that hope that he will just walk through the door i think that's his thing he likes to show up in the middle yeah. So we have to like announce his entrance. Yeah. Yeah. We'll say, oh, Luke's here. <laughs> Yay. 
<laughs> well, Jeff, how you been, man? I'm doing great. I'm uh, working on restoring my house, and um, uh, I say restoring, really repairing, because it's it's a hovel. But um, this is I'm, the den of sin. The den of sin is uh, <laughs> the den of sin has been looking shabby for many. Uh, do you know the story behind my home? I do, okay. but our listeners may not know. Well, I unless uh, they've listened also to the Leisure Hour, but. For those that haven't, uh, I procured my home from, uh, it was a grow house. Uh, they grew marijuana there and seized by the government, and I got it after. And believe it or not, uh, potheads do not do many home improvements hmm. other than really? have a really snazzy uh, potting room. And so, um, no pun intended there. But um, yeah, so they didn't fix anything, so I've been going through and fixing everything and put in some doors yesterday. Really exciting stuff. I'm <laughs> when, sure. when you went in there, were there like holes in the wall and stuff? Oh, there were terrible holes in them. Yeah, it was, it was bad stuff, but the, their grow operation was like, it was incredibly elaborate. It yeah, was the great. silver lining is that they burrowed caves like into the, <laughs> really? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's an underground room that's, um, or hallway that's, it's um, it's pretty impressive. It's frightening, but it's pretty impressive. You could keep expanding down into the earth. That's true. I could. Hmm. I mean, are you got any plans to use this underground room besides, you know, not I growing pot? Hopefully, but I do. I'm uh, I'm considering a wine cellar and or and or a humidor. But I drink too much and I smoke too many cigars. That probably won't get that, <laughs> that collection won't get that big. Well, you so. know, actually, I'm surprised that uh, that when they sold you that house, like before they sold you, I guess maybe because they're lazy, but that they want to just fill that in or something, so nobody could potentially set something back up down there. It's uh, no, uh, they well, they tried to tell me that it was storage or that it was a storm shelter. They didn't uh. even. And, um, but you figured it out. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was <laughs> one of my, uh, a friend that I was in a band with, whom is like a huge pothead or was a huge pothead came in and said, you know, this is a grow room, right? <laughs> and I was like, what? So yeah. Um, some of the, uh, some of the, uh, horticulture equipment was still there, but I had no idea. I was just like, it was a house that was really hard to get, just not money wise, but just yeah. it was just it's hard to get a house from the government. So, but anyway, but you got a deal on it. I did, and, and, and that's the most important part. And I love it. It's my little den of sin. It is. Uh, it is a fun place. So, so it's just been kind of slow going, getting it put back together. And- yes, and I have this. I have a spending hangover. Have you ever had one of those? <laughs> it's a, you spend so much money that you're just like, it, your head hurts and you get kind of depressed. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of like that. It's a, it's regret and it's. <laughs> regret and tears. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> you, you look at the bank account and you, you get a little misty. <laughs> and so yeah, I'm, I'm having the spending hangover, but it's like, you have to have doors, uh, you yeah. know, it's, you have to just. Just keep telling yourself this is for the this is for the greater good. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's funny because I had a I lived in a house when I still lived in Chattanooga a long time ago, like my very early twenties, and like they actually it was a kind of really small house, 
And these people had, there was actually people from like probably two decades before that it had like some kind of pot growing. Um, there was still <laughs> stuff down there too. I mean, there was like, I guess that no one ever found out that they were actually doing it until they moved away. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, that place, that place was a real shithole actually. <laughs> <laughs> like holes in the, holes in the ceiling. And like, I remember we moved out of there and then the guy fixed it up. So yeah. <laughs> what they, they never, it's like, take some of that ingenuity and like yeah. fix the house. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the, uh, uh, most of the time they get caught. Usually somebody snitches on them or they see the electric bill is a whole lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it's not, they, there isn't, they don't have a thing like the, um, on in the movies, they see the helicopter flying over the field, and they've got infrared, and it shows which ones are pot plants. They don't do that at all. They look for Home Depot uh, buckets where they're carrying water up the to the site. They're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no. Uh, there's no infrared or anything like that. So, isn't there a place in Tennessee? And probably if Luke was here, I think he know he he would know where this is. But uh, <laughs> isn't there a place where this guy had dug out? just caverns or he used or he may have dug down into some pre-existing caverns but kind of expanded it it's somewhere it's somewhere in middle tennessee i think somewhere near shelbyville it's some kind of like i'm sure i'm sure there's some kind of amazing uh it's probably like some kind of amazing place that people actually the, the the government will actually i think the tennessee government will actually give you tours tours of it I don't know. There's um what is it? There's the under I think it's the underground lake or underground river they call it and that was used back in the 20s. Um people would go down bootleggers would use that a lot. So I'm sure there's people still mm-hmm. I mean, Tennessee's an interesting landscape in and of itself, especially East Tennessee. So I'm sure there's some kind of grow operation going on that I don't know about. Somebody told me that the guy that owned my house, he actually got snitched on. And so that's how he got caught. But, man, my hat's off to him. I mean, he really was like, he was going to town with that. This is the, uh, yeah, it's the Tennessee Pot Cave. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) The full story behind the great Tennessee Pot Cave. If you spend much time online, chances are you have stumbled upon photos often referred to as the Marijuana House or the Great Tennessee Pot Cave. The photos are of a seemingly normal house with a huge marijuana grow operation hidden in a cave beneath the house. While these pictures have made their rounds on the internet for years, details on the story behind the photos are vague at best. I've always wondered the real story behind the photos of this amazing setup. The property of the uh, the million dollar A frame style vacation home was located on Dixon Springs Road in eastern Trousdale County, Tennessee, about forty miles northeast of Nashville. Uh-huh. There is a hidden passageway from the home to the cave that leads to a corridor with cinder block walls and concrete ceiling and floor. The corridor slopes down forty feet into the converted cave. The cave was complete with air conditioning, full bathroom, and a kitchen with a fully stocked pantry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. An escape hatch lets out steps from the home and has a hydraulic j- jack that lifts a trap door, which is hidden with a boulder. The growing operation was complete with an irrigation system to water the 400 to 500 plants that were between 6 and 12 inches tall and the 400 to 500 additional plants that were as tall as 6 feet. To power this sof- sophisticated lighting and climate control system, they kept the cave's temperature at 87 degrees. The growers had illegally spliced into county power lines. (laughs) Okay, I was wondering how they had that much power. The growers would hire about a half dozen Hispanic workers in Arizona and then drive them to Tennessee. For part of the journey, the windows on the van would be covered so the workers did not know where they were. (laughs) (laughs) The bus. Police were eventually ripped off, tipped off to the operation after the electric company discovered the missing electricity and sent crews to investigate. There are unsubstantiated rumors that a man with a shotgun threatened an electric company worker in a confrontation at the house's massive front gate. Of December 14, 2005, the house was raided by national and local law enforcement agencies and three men were arrested in connection with a growing operation. Brian Gibson and Greg Compton were arrested in Tennessee and are believed to be the day-to-day managers of the operation. Fred Earl Strunk, thought to be the mastermind behind the operation, was arrested at his home in an affluent era, area of Gainesville, Florida. Investigators estimated that the operation could bring in as much as 6 to $8 million per year wow. and could produce about 100 pounds of processed marijuana per harvest. Heroes! Holy! That's genius! I mean, they spend that all that time just to grow a pot. All that, those, all that resources just to grow a pot. I, that's interesting. <laughs> we need to take a field trip. I think, I, I think forty field, miles away, man. I think a field trip is in order to see this. Wow! Good lord. Uh, Jeff, uh, we talked about last week, uh, well, not last week, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We talked about the Kennedy assassination with uh, Craig Ciccone and John Tenney. Yes. And uh, you were telling us right before we started here that you actually have some kind of connection to Jim Garrison, you know, like a friend of yours that is a relative of him. Yes, his uh, Garrison's secretary for years mm-hmm. was... Uh, one of my customers, uh, that's his aunt, and he said that um, it, it was in. Uh, I think we started talking about it. He finally told me about all of this stuff right after they did that special. I think on, I think it was NBC did yeah. a thing not too long ago. It was like the 40th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, and um, I don't know how we got on the subject, uh, but anyway, he started talking about. Oh yeah, it was. There's, you know, what they're saying is not true. Um, they said that, you know, Garrison was uh, basically harassed for decades. Um, they would seize, audit, I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff for years. And um, they basically terrorized his uh, secretary. So um, that's what I, I wasn't able to ask him more about it. But, um, I didn't know that we would be talking about that this week, so otherwise I would have prepared more. But um, yeah, so interesting stuff. It would. I, I still want to ask him what he thinks happened and kind of what his insight yeah. to it is. But I mean, that's well. I wonder. Weird. I wonder what the insight would be. And you know, is is his aunt still alive? I don't know. I didn't ask him. I think yeah. she is. Um, 
I think she's still around. I'd be interested to know just what it was like at that time while that was all going on and just kind of like her impressions of it. Uh, kind of like a, that would almost be like an insider's view of it. I'd love to have her on the show, but I'm, yeah. you know, I'm kind of scared to ask because I, I'm thinking that after decades of, right, you know, <laughs> almost traumatizing events, I, I just can't imagine. So anyway. Yeah, there was, there was a lot about uh, Garrison and we talked a little bit about it with uh, Craig County and John Tenney and he had, there were some strange things and just like some iffy things that he had done. I think like he had used, apparently he had even admitted that he had used sodium pentothal, I think on one of the, um, one of the witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he found a way to justify doing that, but it wasn't quite above board. And there were a couple other things about Garrison that were a little, a little strange. Um, I look at it as, you know, you you are a product of your time. You're a product of your environment, and at at a certain point, you know, being the DA of Orleans Parish, New Orleans, which still has a problem with a lot of corruption, you could see well maybe he felt that he had that he used some tactics that were possibly unorthodox. Yeah, and of course, being what's such a controversial subject as he was getting into. That did kind of leave him open to a lot of attacks, but he was, he was like you said, harassed by a lot of by people about you know he uh, he he definitely was in the sights mm-hmm. of the government for a long time, and of the uh, I'd say of the intelligence agencies as well. The I I I didn't read his book, but on the trail of the assassins, yes. Uh, However, the in the movie JFK, JFK um, saw it several times. I, right. The only Same thing here. that kind of took me out of it was the um, uh, Sutherland's character. Uh, this this sort of mysterious guy comes out of nowhere and uh, starts just like giving him all these realizations and all that. You know, that was the only thing that yeah, took me. That, that it's like, was, did that really happen? No, no, uh, it did not. It didn't happen to Garrison. You got to remember that, you know, that, that, sh- that movie was kind of a fictionalized docudrama. Oh, so that didn't happen. No, it did. That did not happen. Okay. But, Gar- um, Donald Sutherland's character, Mr. X, mm-hmm. was actually based on an actual army general whose name is escaping me at the moment. I hate it when that happens. Welcome but he, to my world. But he apparently was a but but he had some ideas about uh about the Kennedy assassination. Uh and actually that claim that they said in the in the movie that he was in he was coming back from Antarctica and he was in New Zealand and he was looking at the time zone difference and he actually saw that you know they had all this information about Oswald hmm. when Oswald hadn't even been convicted of of uh killing JD Tippett at that point but it was already in the New Zealand press pictures of him all this kind of stuff uh, that actually did happen to 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 the person that uh, to the actual person. So hmm. that actually was part. That actually was part of it. True, but that was just a way to convey his ideas to uh, 
in in the film because that book was that film was based on uh, two books. It was based on Garrison's book on the Trail of the Assassins, and it was also based on Jim Marr's book, which was Crossfire. Uh. So it was actually, but you know, instead of just making it straight about the Garrison case. Mm-hmm. Stone also had to include all the other things in about the conspiracy and all these other ideas. So that's how he structured it. So there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of liberty and there was a little bit of fictionalization. See, I hate it. that he did that because it that was, it was yeah. intriguing up to that point, and then it was just like this guy comes out of nowhere and just starts, you know, revealing all of these. Well, keep mm-hmm. up the good fight because of all of this. Well, it's a good scene because it 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 it, it fills in some of the gaps. And if it gives you the reason why the Kennedy was possibly killed. Um, And I do believe, too, that I wish I could remember his name. I'm going to give Oliver Stone a pass. And I know he's breathing a (laughs) sigh of relief. He did make one of my favorite movies, Platoon. So I will let him. I will give him a pass. That is a good. That is a good. uh, (laughs) You hear that, Oliver? (laughs) You're still on my good side. Have you um, seen um have you seen Untold History of the United States? No, sir. I it's on my queue though in Netflix. Is yeah, it? they just put it out on Netflix, I saw. That's well that's well worth watching. Hmm. L, L, L. Fletcher Prouty. That was the guy's name. Oh. So look him up. Um pulling it up on Wikipedia right now on my phone. But yeah. That's a good one to that's a good one to watch. You know, I'm I'm conflicted on some things with Stone because I think in some ways he like, you know, he he was a big fan of Hugo Chavez and you know, I don't see Hugo Chavez as the epitome of democracy or social democracy, someone that got <laughs> declared president for life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there's people that want Donald Trump to do that. Uh, (laughs) but yeah so let's see a little bit about L. Fletcher Prouty as a critic of the CIA Prouty pointed out its influence in global matters outside the realm of US congressional and government oversight his works detail the formation and development of the CIA the origins of the Cold War the U-2 incident the Vietnam War and the John F. Kennedy assassination Proudy has written that he believes Kennedy's assassination was a coup d'etat and that there is a secret global power elite which operates covertly to protect its interests and in doing so has frequently subverted democracy around the world. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, there's some controversy about about Proudy too. I mean, any of these guys I think are, you know, there's, there's, there's always connections and like apparently he had connections with the Church of Scientology, this is saying. and uh, But yeah, according to Prouty, people within the intelligence and military communities of the United States government conspired to assassinate Kennedy. He maintained that their actions were a coup d'etat to stop the president from taking control of the CIA after the Bay of Pigs. Prouty stated that the assassination was orchestrated by Edward Lansdale, Lansdale General Y in Oliver Stone's film JFK, and that Lansdale appeared in photographs of the three tramps which was something we brought up when talking about uh, E. Howard Hunt last time. So, yeah, this, that's based, it was based on a real person. Hmm. Okay. It, it so took me out of the movie. 
I know that you all yeah. are concerned. That's I mean. actually that's actually one of my favorite <laughs> scenes in that movie. That's probably my favorite scene in that well, movie. Well, I mean, what uh, Daniel Sutherland is, I mean, he's an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. He's just like, you put him in a scene, I mean, he has... He has the X factor. He's a great actor. So, um, but that would that just that moment. It was just like, wait a minute, what? But um, so, what do you think about? Uh, I'll say a name, and then you expound on this. Jack okay. Ruby. Jack Ruby. Hmm. Well, first of all, I would say that I always thought it was very strange that. You read both of the books. Uh, I did not. I will admit that I'm I'm a moron. But the um, <laughs> the uh, in, in the movie it, he had mm. way more of a role than um, you know than in the books. Did they paint him out? I mean, he was not a good dude. He was no, no, he wasn't. Um, and you know, of course, they painted him uh, as you know, the official story is, is that he killed Oswald because he was such a fan of Kennedy and he wanted to spare Jackie Kennedy from the pain of the trial. Right. And that's why he did it. And he was a hothead. Um, but you know, for me personally, I mean, I think that's the key to the whole thing that Oswald never got a chance to, to get a trial. And that I remember my dad telling me about it when I was probably 10, 11 years old. And I'm like thinking, okay, wait a minute. So the guy that they said killed the president was then in turn killed by another guy. Like, and you don't think there's something up with that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Ro- Ruby was, I mean, he, he had connections to the mob. Uh, it depends on what researcher that you study. Uh, there's all kinds of people that say there were people that came forward that said that uh, Ruby had actual contact with Oswald mm-hmm. and another man named David Ferry, who was in Oswald's crowd in New Orleans. Um, definitely there were Bob connections and whether those connections were linked to the CIA or any other organization, I don't know. Uh, but it's possible that he could have just, he could have been activated to take him out for whatever reason. Maybe they had some dirt on him mm-hmm. or maybe he was part of the, he had been part of something. Uh, he was part of it. He was the one chosen to do it. I mean, who knows? He did. Um, I think he died. I think he went. He went on trial, and I think he died in 1966, and or 66 or 67. And he was trying to. He'd actually tried to get the Warren Commission to get him out of Dallas during when the Warren Commission was being investigated, and. They were. He wanted to go because he was afraid that he that if he stayed in Dallas, he was going to he was going to be killed. And he made all these kind of strange statements that he knew the real story. Um, and then later, I think in sixty six or sixty seven, he died in prison from cancer. And there's some people that have speculated that it was a cancer that was an injection. Mm. You'll hear those conspiracy theories about, you know, that we can use cancer as a weapon, basically, to kill world leaders. I mentioned Hugo Chavez. There's actually a conspiracy theory that we did that to Chavez, that we somebody injected him with, uh, like a doctor that was on the CIA payroll, injected him with cancer cells, and then he died a few months later. Interesting. Yeah, there's all kind of weird stuff like that. 
I have uh, sort of, I, I, you know, as much as the stuff that I've studied, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I really could not and put it past somebody to do that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> to look at cancer as a, a as a weapon, basically. Um, I, a little sidebar: my ex stepfather, whom is deceased, uh, he actually was thrown out of Jack Ruby's uh, strip club when really? he was in. Yeah, when he was in the service or nom or whatever. But um, yeah, Jack Ruby himself threw them both out of, this <laughs> out of one of his clubs. And um, of course, my ex-stepfather was not a good dude either. But yeah. um, they, um, so uh, I, it, it's always kind of fascinated me about that guy. His name, I don't know, it always comes up, but it's always more than just, yeah, you know, what is told or whatever, but, um, well, some have speculated, um, also too, that, uh, what a lot of what Ruby was saying was that he had these ideas. He had like a persecution complex and apparently he had these paranoid ideas cause he was Jewish that everybody around him were Nazis and they were trying to kill him. Hmm. Uh, apparently he became rather mentally unhinged toward the end of his life. Um, but it, you know, it's very strange that, um, the Dallas police did not secure that building. And a lot of, there's also, and it is speculation that somebody on the Dallas police let him in to the, to where he could shoot Oswald. And there's also, there's also footage of Ruby in the police station while there, there was like a little brief press conference that they took Oswald to. Mm-hmm. And actually Ruby is there in the crowd. So he was there two days before he was there on Friday. He was there on Saturday. Wow. And then on Sunday is when, uh, he shot Oswald. I had not heard the, he was, so they sort of leaked this, not leaked, but they told everybody that he was trying to spare Jackie O's. Feelings. Yeah. That's what, that was the, the guy that official, owned a strip club. <laughs> yeah. That was the official explanation. Uh, but then you look at all his mob ties and I, then you look at the mafia's ties, the CIA, Sounds uh, like horse pucky you know, to me. And that was very classic. That's a very classic mob way to kill somebody. Just go up to him and plug him in the stomach. Yeah. You know, that was a very classic way to do it. Mm. Um, in fact, you see that. Now, this is made later, obviously, but you see that in the movie Godfather Part Two, where they're taking Hyman Roth. Uh, Michael Corleone sends his guy to kill Hyman Roth and in the airport and he comes up and shoots him in the stomach, you know? So that was a very classic mob hit. Interesting. Uh, side interesting note to me, um, JFK loved Cuban cigars, loved them, passionately loved them. Cuban missile crisis. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Anyway, is there a conspiracy? (laughs) Is there? Let's get into some news, guys, uh, while we're talking here. Uh, I want, this is kind of by the time this ep- this episode is going to be released, it's going to be old hat, but uh, apparently Mike Pence went to go see the play Hamilton, and I know absolutely really nothing about this play. I, I know it's about Alexander Hamilton, obviously, but I, uh, I guess that it's also, is it, I guess it's like a, I guess it's I guess it's about homosexuality. I don't know. 
Do you guys know anything about I, it? I don't know anything about Hamilton. Yeah. But apparently uh, the crowd started to boo Pence at the curtain call. And the, they, the cast of Hamilton had something to say to Pence. And I want to listen to what, he, to what they say. And I want to get you guys' opinion on whether this was, whether this was hostile or not. Before I give my opinion on it, what do you guys think? Well, I that was pretty pretty mild and pretty polite and very polite. Yeah, it, yeah very eloquently put. I mean, it's the fact that anyone got upset about this at all. I, I find kind of ridiculous because they were just expressing the fact that they're concerned, which is their right to express it and to feel that way, and. That that's that they had a chance, you know. They had a platform. They had the opportunity to say something mm-hmm. to somebody that they think can make a difference, and they took it. And the fact that Trump spent like a solid day on Twitter, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I I'm just gonna, don't I'm get. gonna read those here in a second, Jeff. Uh, I well, I'm I totally agree with Robertino. The it's uh, that was not. <laughs> I, he, that's who he'll always be, Robertino to me. Oh, <laughs> pro moment. That was uh, that was incredibly polite, and everybody's yeah. just um, if if you know anything about Pence, he's a terrifying individual. I mean, he's he's. Uh, he, his beliefs are pretty out there. Uh, I would say close to, well, this is harsh. It's kind of, it's close to hateful side. And, um, that was, well, he is, uh, he's not a big fan of, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth or anything. Yeah. But, I mean, I think we, when you're talking about when he was governor of Indiana, the religious freedom act and all this there's yeah. And I mean, he seems well, to be part of that whole, actually. like, if you don't believe what I believe, then I'm going to put forth all kinds of legislation to, you know, yeah. Yeah. 
to shut you down. Which and is, so, which is kind of the reverse of small of small government, right? Yeah. What is with that? Every one of them says, "Oh, get the big government off your back," but they're the most controlling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, we we uh we explored this back in April when we talked about the great bathroom debate and how uh basically to enforce the law you were going to have to increase the power of the government in order to enforce this ridiculous law. Right. <laughs> it has you know, so it's a contradiction in terms, right, of people that say, "Well, I want the government out of my life." Right, yeah. We, but it's not you know, but you're going to enforce a law for people. You've you have a policeman there at every bathroom to say where you can and cannot pee. Yeah, you know, so that's that's the very definition of big government. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you there. And about the religious freedom law, I wonder what the you, you know they were really in some ways. I think, and this hasn't happened yet. Oddly enough, maybe well after everything dies down, Trump is finally inaugurated. But you know. I mean, Muslims could use that too and say, well, we don't have to serve Jews or Christians because it's against our religious, it's against our religious freedom right. to do so. Yeah. So it, it could, it could, that could very easily backfire in their face. Yeah. Now, all that being said, I, you know, I don't really have much of a problem with Pence. I think Pence is, is much more, he is very much, he's almost a boy scout in many ways. Cause he's very, he's, he's a, he's almost a moderating influence on Trump. Mm-hmm. And when he was interviewed on, I think it was CBS this morning, they were talking to him. I don't have the clip, but he, you know, they asked him about, the, they mostly talked about the transition and everything is happening and uh, Mitt Romney meeting with Trump about potential secretary of state. And all Pence said about the Hamilton thing is he said, you know, look, it was a good play. I enjoyed it. You know, they, I listened to what they said and that was it. You know, they weren't booing me. I, I told my son that, you know, this is this is what democracy is, where people agree to disagree, and that's all Pence said. Pence mm. was very yeah. Pence was actually very gracious. That's well put. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, Pence is actually. I mean, he's actually a very articulate guy. When I was listening to the vice presidential debate with him and Kane, I, I thought, you know, I thought Pence this this guy should be the Republican nominee. I would have more. I. I actually would have more voted for, for 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 him than than Trump because everything everything he said just he was very well spoken. I didn't agree with everything that he said, but you know he he laid out an argument. Right. Okay. Well, we're all just concerned. That's it. Yeah. We don't know how it's going to go. And, and Trump. Uh, but yeah, the, the whole the whole gay rights thing. Uh, well, I noticed that a lot of people, uh, and I think this is where the Hamilton stuff comes in. A lot of people in the gay community are afraid of Trump being elected, even though Trump has said many times, he has said many times that he's not going to do anything against gays. He's already come out and said that the Obergefell ruling, the gay marriage ruling was going to stand. But I think a lot of the reason why people got so freaked out and you started seeing uh, these, these suicide hotlines for gay and gay, lesbian and trans people is because of Pence's policies, Mm. not necessarily Trump, but it's all lumped together. Well, here's Trump's tweets. This is what he said. Our wonderful future VP, Mike Pence, was harassed last night at the theater by the cast of, Cam- of Hamilton, cameras blazing. This should not happen. 
Words. I couldn't, and, 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 I couldn't disagree more with that. <laughs> and, and this one, this one is the real, this one's the real kicker. I love this. The theater must always be a safe and special place. The cast of Hamilton was very rude last night to a very good man, Mike Pence. Apologize. See, there, there's every time I try to give him a chance, he goes there with that. Uh, okay. That, those <laughs> well, demands. Two things here. Two things. Safe and secure, safe and special place. I've been seeing so much stuff on Facebook about all the Trump supporters or non-Trump supporters, whoever, making fun of millennials and saying that they need their safe safe space. And I will still maintain that most millennials are not like that. In fact, you have millennials that are just as much Trump supporters as on the other side and and some that just don't care. This whole safe space thing is these stupid things that they're doing in colleges that are that are ridiculous. But I love how Trump comes out and says this is a safe and special place. <laughs> don't need any opinions here. None. That's the other aspect of it. And that's the more worrisome aspect of it. Yeah. Is that, you know, well, first of all, <laughs> Trump needs to try to be presidential. He's president-elect for the United States, for God's sakes. January 20th, he's going to be president. Okay. Obama's stepping down. Trump's moving in. And getting on there and, and ranting and raving on on Twitter and who even knows if it's him? It could be just these staffers that are doing it, but it, it seems to be him. Oh, I'm sure it's him. They're uh, going to take his account away again. Yeah. yeah. They already did that, like, what, two or three <laughs> days before the election, so he didn't say anything to not get elected. <laughs> and uh, so he's – so he, he, it, it, the second part is, though, you know, people are going to disagree with him. It, they're going to disagree – and they're going to spoof him like they've already done an SNL with, with Alec Baldwin. He's already come out against that, too. He's a child. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, just, it's just like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. You, you got to stay above it. And, and, you know, a few shows ago, I talked about how, how Obama and the mistake that he made with the Trayvon Martin thing where he did not remain impartial. And where I thought the 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 where I thought that's really the root of this whole thing where they where all this racial stuff began to be when the president did not remain impartial, that's when that started. Trump is going to have to remain impartial. He's not going to have to, you know, otherwise he's going to make worse mistakes than Obama made. He's yeah. not going to do that. There's no, the- well, and that's Adam and I were talking about this earlier too. Like all he's done now is like draw out the trolls. Like he's, I mean, he's put himself up on a stand to be shot at by right. all these comments and all these, you know, anyone who's got, anyone who's got something to say about it. Like if, if he, if you just like turn your head and ignore it, like Pence did, and I, I as much right. as I don't agree with a lot of the things he believes, like I got to commend him for that. Um, it would just go away. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, let Pence defend himself, which he did. Yeah, you know, he said, "Okay, that's discourse. That's it." You know, well, that's and to, all that needs to be said. That and and I just democracy does not work without opinions. I mean, everyone needs to yeah. have an opinion. Everyone need even the people that are wrong need to have an opinion. They need to express it. That's wrong, wrong. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> We've given the world economy to a child. A child. I mean, 
Well, that's okay. Don't worry. The neo, the, the neoconservatives and CFR guys are all in control anyway. So, uh, oh, and another thing, and I couldn't really substantiate this because some of it was, it looked like rumor, but apparently, supposedly, there was a Trump supporter in a balcony in, a Ham- in the Hamilton cast of Chicago that started yelling, we won, you lost, get over it. At the cast of, of the Hamilton cast of Chicago, and said that they actually the cast started to cry or something, and then I'm like, okay, I, I couldn't substantiate it, so I really didn't have there. There was I, I want to see video of this. I have heard a lot of these sore winners yeah. stories. <laughs> I, I want to see video of this. Otherwise, I'm not. I'm just not going to believe it. I've well, I've you mean of sore winners? No, of of that particular case. Oh in no, the uh, I saw some really horrible stuff on um, what is it? Uh, Full frontal. The uh, there was uh, really terrible, hateful stuff on that. Really? Yeah, I mean, you don't want. I mean, I wish I hadn't seen it. I don't want it in my head. <laughs> right. But um, it was really well, racist, terrible. Stuff. Let's talk about this. And I have another angle on this. This is lately. This is, here, Trump fans are making a statement to Starbucks by ordering with Trump's name. If they refuse, take video. Trump supporters are ordering Starbucks under Trump's name to make a statement to the coffee company. Operation hashtag Trump Cup. Go to Starbucks. One, go to Starbucks and tell them your name. To your name is Trump. Two, if they refuse, take video. Please share and spread the word. The trend was apparently started by Twitter user at Baked Alaska on thir- Twitter. Is so silly, dude. I, I have uh, anyway. <laughs> since then, many supporters have ordered Trump cups and shared them online. At Baked Alaska, a former BuzzFeed employee, the website I'm reading from actually, told his told his supporters to one, go to Starbucks and tell them your name is Trump, and two, if they refuse, take video. As the hashtag Trump Cup hashtag spread on Twitter, many right wing accounts began circulating a video claiming one Starbucks location called the cops on a man who ordered with Trump's name. BuzzFeed News could not verify the source of the video or details of the event. This alleged incident only sparked more cups. If we want Trump written on our cups, don't call the cops. Feel free to boycott Starbucks after this, one woman wrote. Uh, okay. A spokesperson <laughs> for Starbucks told BuzzFeed News they do not require baristas to write or call out customer names. Over the years, writing customer names on cups and calling out their names has been a fun ritual in our stores, a spokesperson said. Rarely has it been abused or taken advantage of. We hope and trust that our customers will continue to honor that tradition. This isn't the first time Trump supporters have spoken out against the coffee giant. Earlier this month, Starbucks released limited edition green cups meant to celebrate community during a divisive divisive time in our country. Many people thinking it was a replacement for the company's red holiday cups got really offended. The actual holiday cups, which yes, are red, were released a week later. On the other hand, many people are pointing out that buying Starbucks coffee to protest Starbucks doesn't seem like the most well-thought-out protest. (laughs) That's the thing. What do you stand to gain? That's that's what yeah. What is the what is their what, what are they trying to prove? I don't understand the situation. I, I don't know. Well, you're. I mean, these are I don't know. stupid well, and another people. Thing, like this says a lot about our society as 
as a whole is that we keep coming back to Starbucks cups. Like that's like the yeah, yes, like yes. the written law yes, of our nation yes, is on yes, this cup. And yes. <laughs> I'll conclude it with this. This isn't the first time this week Trump supporters have made headlines in Starbucks. A Florida man went viral on Wednesday after he berated a black Starbucks employee for what he called anti-white discrimination. What did he... Okay. <laughs> a witness said the man was angry that his order took too long. The man told the Miami Herald he had he had had a bad, really bad day and has since apologized to the employee. Although he later said he was racially discriminated against and may sue Starbucks. No, he also yeah. <laughs> he also stated in another in an interview that he gave on the local station that he was mentally ill and off his meds that day. Oh, mm. uh, yeah, that makes more sense. You gotta go with the Occam's Razor sometime. <laughs> back, <laughs> back to what you were saying. Why is Starbucks the pinnacle? Is that the pinnacle of our civilization or like, something? Yeah, exactly. At least once a year, we got to get upset about these stupid like pl- paper cups. Like it's, it's a cup. It holds coffee. I love coffee. Well, well, people also hold the like I was saying before the show. The CEO of Starbucks is considered to be one of the most. I mean, he's like he's essentially a humanitarian. Um, he gives. He is about to give. I think all of all Starbucks employees, uh, college educations. So that's what he's working towards. He gives them all health, health care, whether they're part-time or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's, um, I mean, he really is trying to do the right thing and it's well, basically an anti-Republican kind of stance on, well, you here's, know, doing my, business. here's my thoughts on it. Uh, it's getting cold outside. We're getting towards the holidays. So what do you want to do? What do you most want? You want something warm. I want something red. You want some coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Remember last year? Remember when we, like you just said, Rob, that everybody, the people got mad, all the Christians out there, those Christians went out there and they, I'm doing the quotes. They went out, they went out there and they were, they were mad because Starbucks had changed their cups. How dare a business cater to more than one religion to a solid red instead of, instead of putting Merry Christmas and in Christmas trees and war on presents on the presents on their, on their, on on their cups War on Christmas. And all of a sudden you know how they were protesting against it by going and they were buying Starbucks. And now I want you to put Trump on my cup. Yeah. That's a good point. I thought of and, now, and what's are going on? They're going in there and buying Starbucks. And it's the same time of year. Hmm. Have we ever heard of viral marketing? I like your condescending voice, Adam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's viral marketing. It's an advertisement for Starbucks. <laughs> What did it say? BuzzFeed. Oh, I wonder if BuzzFeed is getting paid for this article. <laughs> hmm. Let's see. What did they say here? At Baked Alaska, a former BuzzFeed employee is the one that started it. Hmm. You got the little bell sound effect? Ding, ding, ding. Got the, the horn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, manufactured, manufactured conflict to sell coffee. 
I don't know that they need much. Uh, <laughs> me, I'm sitting here with a Starbucks yeah. coffee. Yes. <laughs> I didn't even know about this whole write Trump on it. What? what what's that buzzing? Something about to blow up? Yeah, it's a drone that that's about be, to hit at my holiday. Is that? Cup. I mean, what what what's going to happen in 2017? Are we just going to go back to? Are we just going to go back to the Christians being pissed off and going to buy Starbucks so they can write? I don't even remember what it was. I'd have to go back and look. I don't even remember now. But, oh, yeah. You were right. Merry Christmas. So the Starbucks barista would have to say, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Golly. We get upset about the dumbest things in this country. For God's sakes. <laughs> well, Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. There's no first, struggle first anymore. First world problems. <laughs> yeah, there's no struggle anymore. It's uh we're we're too comfortable. So we have to invent a, a war. <laughs> <laughs> a war on our holidays. All right, guys. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Uh thanks for having me. We are gonna thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank Luke for being here. Crickets. Chirp, chirp. Yep. And uh we are going to have an interview. I'm actually going to be doing this interview uh, tomorrow, but it's Sunday, November 20th, isn't it? Something like that. And we're, I'm going to be doing that tomorrow, but with Ryan Sprague about his book, Somewhere in the Skies. But you guys will hear it in just a few seconds. So, guys, uh, we will go to the interview, but I want to close this section out. Uh, we're also going to have next time in December... And we're taking about a two-week break because we're going to have uh, Alyssa's birthday party that you and Jeff have been working on some songs. You're going to have oh, yeah. like an 80s-themed birthday party. Yeah, actually, we need, uh, yeah, we need to come up with a name for that 80s band. Submit names <laughs> yes, please. for an 80s cover band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, submit that. <laughs> yes. And we'll write it on our Starbucks cups. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Winner gets a Starbucks uh, Grande, not what's the bigger Vente? Not a Vente, but a Grande. I will I will fork out money for a Grande <laughs> coffee, uh, not a Vente, <laughs> but uh, for the winner of this. <laughs> Next time we have uh, Walter Bosley coming on. We're going to talk about his new book, as of which I have no idea of the title of at this point, but apparently he's about to get it released, and by the time that actually do the interview in about two weeks three weeks we will uh i will have that book read and we're gonna have joshua cutchin coming back the week after that and we're nice. gonna end the world end the world in the year <laughs> out with probably end the world too in the year out with dr future is going to return that'd be an appropriate great, one for the end yes, of the world that is a very appropriate one for the end of the world so, guys, thank you so much, and we will be back with Ryan Sprague on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, we're here on Conspiranormal, and this is the interview portion of the show. And on the line, we have a first-time guest, 
uh, Ryan Sprague, and we're going to talk about his book tonight, Somewhere in the Skies, which has to do with one of my favorite subjects on the show, as anyone can guess, which is UFOs. And I am here um, by my lonesome. I uh, don't have Rob with me or any of the other guys, so you just get us two today <laughs> on this on this portion. Ryan, uh, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. It's really great to have you. Oh, thanks so much, man. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I love your show, and uh, oh, thank you. To be on, it's a dream, man. Definitely. Yeah, that's 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 awesome to hear. You know, I had heard of you uh, f- for a while now because I know that you write. Uh, you, I think you write for Mysterious Universe and also for. Um, the Paranormal Brain Trust with Jim Harold. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. Um, I haven't written anything for Mysterious Universe yet. Um, okay. Been in talks with the guys over there. I love the work they do. Um, but yeah, I'm part of the Paranormal Brain Trust again. Jim Harold, one of the preeminent podcasters out there. Um, he his was the first show I ever listened to. Um, hmm. and, uh, I was, he's been doing it for so he's been doing it for a long time now. Yeah, man. I, I want to say like, God, early two thousands, maybe mid two thousand five. Okay. He started. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I reached out to him at one point, said, if you ever need writers for anything, let me know. And lo and behold, he created sort of this really cool hub for people in all different walks of life could write for you know you got nick redfern marie d jones Teresa argy mm-hmm. um and they all sort of have their specialties so uh you know micah nick and i sort of took the ufo reins and uh mm-hmm. running with it so. <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself about you know, some of the other things that you're interested in besides ufos yeah definitely you know um we all have passions in life uh ufos aren't my whole life they're a big part of it but um i grew up an athlete i was a baseball player so i'm really into baseball still to this day you know Mm -hmm. watch as much as i can um go cubbies (laughs) um (laughs) but other than that man i uh i actually went to school for theater um i i I caught the acting bug late in high school and I thought, you know what, I'll give it a try. So I, I went into college for stage craft, which is, you know, building sets and, uh, designing stuff. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was really cool learning how all this stuff was made and how you, you you know, you make the little models before you make the grand scale set. Um, absolutely loved it. And then again, caught the acting bug. One of my professors made me, audition for one of the plays that i was helping make the sets for and uh caught that bug again and sort of ran with it man um all the meanwhile i was also writing plays uh and that's kind of where i found my niche um i live here in new york city and i am by all accounts a professional playwright um i write all day and i i work in the theater business at night and uh yeah, man. I, I, I'm all over the place. I, I've I found a lot of different things that I'm passionate about. I haven't zeroed in on just one yet and still trying to navigate that maze. I, I think it's good to have many different passions and to have many different things that you're into. I, I think that's I think that's a good thing. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Are, are, do you still act or you just primarily just write? I primarily write. Again, you know, I, I find that much more rewarding. Uh, I... I I enjoy listening. I'm that kind of guy who's in the back of the room in the corner, just sort of listening to conversations. And I like to really take that in and 
make it my own some way, somehow create a character around it, a story, what have you. So, um, yeah, I would say, I would say that writing is definitely the, the journey I'm on. Um, you know, if the opportunity arose to act again, I might do it, but Mm -hmm. for now, I'm just going to put pen to paper and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I, I think that's good. Now, the the theater. I mean, it, it, are we talking like any Broadway, anything on Broadway, or are off Broadway, or is it is it primarily in the area that you are? Are you doing anything in Manhattan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um a lot of my stuff has been done off, off, off Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but that's kind of the way I like it, man. It's kind of like doing sure. an indie film where you have complete creative control over what's going yeah. on. Um. Uh, don't get me wrong. Broadway is amazing. It's, you know, what sort of attracted me to New York City and to the theater world. I remember coming to New York City as a young kid and seeing a Broadway show. and It's just so magical, so big, you know. Um, and so I moved here, started doing it. And I realized, you know, if you want to work in this city, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of other places, uh, you got to make the work yourself. So um, I work with a lot of small independent theater companies uh, and get to develop my plays. You know, it's it's sure. nothing set in stone. I get to see how it looks up there and uh, change stuff if I want to. Which is a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing about theater. It's never done. It's uh, you know, whereas like a movie, sort of done, immortalized, and there's that. Um, but I do work on Broadway at night. I uh, I bartend at the Broadway shows, so that's my br- oh, okay. that's my bread and butter. How I pay the rent here, very nice. <laughs> while I'm nice. while I'm writing and uh, hunting UFOs during the uh, during the day. Ron, how does your theater experience and your involvement in that? How does it reflect on your also this other interest in UFOs? It's interesting, man. When I first started really getting serious about UFO research, I was worried. Uh, I was worried that I wouldn't be taken seriously, uh, that my voice wouldn't really be heard because, you know, I come from an acting background. And what's mm-hmm. what's an actor? Nothing but a person faking, a person pretending. Um, so I was, I was nervous at first to really try to mix and meld that together and uh, embrace both of them because I wanted to be taken seriously in both facets of my life, whether it's theater or ufos and if you swing it either way man you're gonna get ridiculed you know in the theater biz if they see i'm hunting ufos they might think i'm a little little out there you know (laughs) um which most theater people are anyways let's be honest (laughs) Uh, right right but you know on the flip side too uh i wanted to be taken seriously in the uh realm of ufo studies because that's what we need and that's what we lack a lot of the time um so i would say the true melding came when i spoke to uh peter robbins my mentor in the ufo field Mm -hmm. good friend of our show too absolutely yeah um and he he is the older version of me adam i have to admit (laughs) that man um we both are into theater and we both are obsessed with ufos we both had personal experiences with the ufo phenomenon as well um so i kind of took after him and made it together. So what I decided to do is I started writing a stage play about Peter's involvement in the Rendlesham incident. Um, mm-hmm. That is still in development here in New York City. Uh, I meet with Peter, you know, once a month to nail down 
every fact we can possibly come up with about the case. And for me to just get to know the guy, you know, I'm, I'm basing a character around him. I want to see his mannerisms, uh, how he speaks, you know, uh, his... It, it, just everything, everything you can think of that gets infused into a character. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, still working on that here in the city and um, another short play about UFOs and abduction experiences. But uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, let's get, let's get into the book somewhere in the skies. Um, I want to talk about what made you interested in writing, first of all, writing a book about this subject. Uh, and about UFOs from an, in the experiencer's perspective, mm-hmm. what what was it that made that you wanted to write it just from that perspective instead of going maybe through for like a uh, nuts and bolts scientific examination? Right, right. So I approached um, the publisher of the book, Richard Dolan. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Uh, oh yes, yeah. Um, about two years ago, and. I, you know, again, I'm this young, naive researcher thinking I've got something to contribute. So I go to him and say, I want to write a book on UFOs. He's like, yeah, so does everyone else. Like what? <laughs> and he was honest with me, man. He's like, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to contribute to the field? Move it forward. And like I said, I was like, I, I don't really know how I can do that. So I really took some time to think about how I could do that. You know, what could I bring to the table that's going to benefit ufology? Um, and I decided that I wanted to focus on those who had the experiences. That's what always interested me most when we would hear about these cases, um, whether it's in book form or documentary form. Uh, I wanted to know what about that person having the experience? You know, how did the, how did it affect them afterwards or even during the experience itself? What do they think it is other than this talking head on the documentary telling us what these people thought um Mm -hmm. so that's what i really wanted to focus on that human approach to what could possibly be an alien phenomenon and not in the terms of possibly et and origin but something foreign to these people having the experience right Um, so yeah man that human impact that emotional state they're in um, the implication to the event. That's what I really wanted to focus on. And maybe that could give us some answers with what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it, it's always good. I think for me, especially to hear the personal experiences of people, I, I'm, I'm much more into that than something like, trying to figure it out scientifically or mm-hmm. are, are trying to prove it in any kind of scientific way. Um, one of my favorite of the paranormal themed shows, um, because another interest of mine is ghosts and that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, was actually celebrity ghost stories, believe it or not, mm. because and the reason that I liked it, not necessarily because it was celebrities or whatever, uh, was that it was mostly told from the perspective of these people telling their personal stories mm-hmm. uh, instead of the whole you know, old, tired, uh, let's get in here with some meters and go investigate an abandoned hospital or, or somebody's house and play with flashlights. You know, I, I enjoyed that much more because it, it, when you see someone tell a story and you see the look on their face and you you can tell that to that person – 
it was a hundred percent real whether whether it's real to you or not that person actually experienced that and it affected them in some kind of way absolutely man i couldn't put put it better myself the the catalyst event for that approach to the book came when I met someone face to face, just like what you said. Um, mm-hmm. When you actually see them, um, you know, okay, I- I'll put it into context. I'm sitting at a diner with a woman who had a possible abduction experience when she was a younger kid. Um, she's sitting at this diner with her husband, and she's gripping his hand you know as tight as she can she's bawling her eyes out her knee is like hitting the bottom of the uh the table she's so nervous you know at like a constant rate and this is all things that i was looking at while she's recalling this very traumatic event that happened to her and right there man there's your human reaction whatever happened to her whether it was et or not uh she believed this happened, just like you said. This person firmly believes that what happened happened to them, and I'm not going to take that away from them. I'm going to record their account, and I'm going to work with them to try to figure out what they think it was. Again, mm-hmm. instead of having someone tell them what it was. And that yeah. involves – Instead of yourself or someone else telling them exactly what, they, what, you, think you, what you think it was. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk about your experience. Uh, because I think that uh, as someone that has had an experience, a UFO experience, that uh, you can r- relate to these people. So let's talk about your own personal and how it, how it actually affected you mm-hmm. growing up. Sure. So, um, yeah, I had an experience when I was 12 years old. Uh, this took place in upstate New York um, in the Alexandria Bay area off the uh, the St. Lawrence River. So every summer I would go on a weekend vacation with my parents and I'd go fishing. I loved it. It was, you know, it was relaxing. It was something I could do by myself. I was always sort of a loner. Um, So I'm fishing off this dock of our hotel one night and, you know, I'm listening to to Green Day. I remember this distinctly, (laughs) the Dookie album. I'm listening Uh to uh, Longview and... um, and I'm just casting my reel out, you know, not catching anything. Um, but I loved it, man. I absolutely loved it. It was a perfect night. And when I'm going to reel, uh, reel my line in, I see these three white lights uh, reflected in the water. Um, I was like, are those in the water? Like, what the, what's going on? Um, you know, I'm 12 years old. Common sense isn't at its best yet. So I'm like, oh, I should probably look up because things reflect in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do. I look up. I'm expecting to see a plane. But what I see, man, is, uh, again, in a triangular formation, these three white lights and some sort of like, uh, I, I, I never know how to really describe this, but like an orange reddish ball, um, like a hazy ball. Uh, in the middle. So I think this is like a structured craft. I, I, um, everything is sort of leading to that, but I don't see anything. I don't see like metal. I don't see anything like that. And it was pretty low, pretty far down. And, um, but I couldn't see anything behind it. Couldn't see the stars, couldn't see the moon. Um, 
So I kind of deduced that it had to be some sort of structure. Um, so anyways, man, this thing is just like floating silently, I might add, over the water. Um, all I could hear, you know, I ripped my headphones off. Uh, the discman I've got goes flying. <laughs> and um, I can't hear anything but the water hitting the dock. It's like, what the hell is going on? Like, even at 12, I knew, like, this was not normal. This is not right. Um, so I start yelling for my dad inside, and he's he's in the hotel watching a Yankees game or something. I, I, I could faintly hear, like, the sound of ESPN or something like that inside. So there's no getting him outside at that point <laughs> when sports are on. Like, that's his time. Um, but I just keep yelling for him. And I didn't want to move. I was frozen there. I didn't want to, like, lose sight of this thing. He finally comes out, and this thing is just floating away very slowly um, into the distance. Uh, now, it's hard to really, really imagine it going this way, but it's possible. I think whatever it was went into the water. Uh, my dad believes that it just sort of, you know, went over the the crust of where the water meets the sky and disappeared. Um, he thinks it was a plane. And you know what? I don't blame him. You know, he he's there to protect me, tell me everything's all right. But I just knew something was off, man. Like, this was not a plane. I didn't hear anything. No lights were blinking. Uh, nothing. So that was my my one experience. I saw a triangular, quote-unquote, craft. And I was terrified, man. Like, I had no idea what I saw, so I started taking out all these books at the library about UFOs and Loch Ness Monster and all that (laughs) paranormal crap. Um, And I use the word crap in quotations because I know (laughs) that it's no longer that (laughs) Um, uh. in some ways. Um, But yeah, dude, I I just got obsessed. My fear turned into obsession, and I have just been trying to figure out that triangle ever since. Now, when you said that you didn't hear anything, are you talking about did you that you didn't hear anything from the triangle? But you also you said you didn't hear the water. I could only hear the water. Um, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so that's kind of when I was like, "All right, well, then why the hell is this thing above me not making any noise?" Yeah. Um, and you know, because if it's if it's a jet, if it's you, know, you would hear that, right? You, you really would, right? And even like, you know, I. I struggle a lot with this, Adam. I, what I think I saw very well could have been um, something military. You know, there's sure. there's an Air Force base c- kind of far away from where this area is, but far enough away where why would it be in this area? Um, stealth flight was just coming into the public eye around, you know, early, mid-90s. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't deny that, but... That being said, what I experienced was so freaking weird, man. Like, it felt like time slowed down. Um, I didn't hear anything, but I could feel, like, vibration, uh, like, kind of going through me, like, in the back of my neck and my chest. So I'm like, is this the, like, is this the aftermath of whatever this thing is instead of hearing it? I I don't know. I honestly Mm. don't know, but... That one singular event has just kept me going since then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even if even if you could say like you can rationalize and say it was some kind of military aircraft or top secret, it's still something that is essentially unknown to you, and that mystery is probably always going to be there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'll search far and wide all I want, but um, I don't think I'll ever know what happened that night. 
And I'm yeah. kind of okay with that because it's opened up so many doors to other experiences and other right. sightings and other people who've seen what I saw. So, right. right. Let's so let's talk about some of those stories. Um, I, I want to get into and you start off with the book uh, talking about these orb stories, mm-hmm. and this is interesting because you could almost look at this and say that this is not a UFO. That this could be more of a of a ghost kind of phenomenon yeah. that people are, that people are actually seeing. And I was, I was, I found it, I, I like how you structure the book. You start off with these very simple sightings and you, then you go all the way into the area of abductions. Mm-hmm. And I like how you, you take a step. It's step by step as things escalate to this point, but let's talk about some of these orb sightings and what, what, what's one of the stories that stands out to you about those and how the people reacted to them. Yeah. So like you said, these anomalous, uh, lights in the sky, they seem so mundane when we first think about them, but like you said, man, they could be anything, absolutely anything. Um, right. Right. And our good, our good friend Soraya, Mm -hmm. um, he said, he, he says something very, I think that is very apropos here that, you know, if you see a orb, if you see a light in your house, it's a ghost. If you see a light in the sky, it's a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> That's such good critical thinking. Yeah, I love Soraya. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's something else. He really is. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of this case, um, I guess we could view it from a UFO stance. This happened back in 2012. Um, where a gentleman named Joe, he was, um, you know, coming home one night. He's with a, a couple of friends at his house, and uh, he sees these orange orb-like balls just dangling, you know, right above him, man. So he tries to brush it off. He thinks maybe it's a plane flying overhead or whatnot, but um, or even stars or satellite. But um, they just hung there, man. And then they started sort of dancing around one another like a choreographed dance almost um he said it was beautiful and um it just like it was meant for him to see there um but he did tell his other friends to come and see and they all witnessed this so right then you know the dude's not crazy um he even gets it on camera at one point um i've seen the video it's very very intriguing um but this isn't the only time Joe sees this. He starts seeing these orbs like night after night. Um, so he contacts the local FAA branch and they said nothing was in the sky that night. He even contacts the Air Force Base, Shaw Air Force Base, and uh, they said they had nothing in the skies that night. Um, so we know right then and there this was not conventional aircraft of any sort, whether it's military or commercial. Um, but then what are we left to sort of deduce? Is this some sort of paranormal activity? Um, something like that. But uh, either way, Adam, the the event had a really profound effect on him, even though we might just see this as some lights in the sky. Um, sure. Joe... Joe analyzed a lot of art. That was sort of his job beforehand um, from a business sense. Um, He was like an art curator, um, art history, as it were. Um, But after this event, 
he felt like something was unlocked in his mind and he started seeing these patterns in the art that he was analyzing and his mind was starting to see stuff mathematically, which was something he never was interested in math being one of them. Um, I can relate to that. And, uh, it changed him, man. It triggered something in him and it made him see art in a whole new way, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and these events sort of have that impact on a lot of people that that experience them. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it could be something completely natural. Yeah. Or some kind of energy that just comes from the earth. Um, and, but as you've said before, it's the experience and it's the meaning that we put onto it. It's the meaning we put onto it, you know, man. And like <sighs> – I, I, I like actually Joe put it really well when I talked to him. He said, um, we're looking for something that we already learned, have taught or have discovered. Uh, we've forgotten our way, but isn't entirely lost. Uh, he thinks this is in his words. The answer will be found, heard and accepted. And while he continues to search for answers, he honestly feels that he'll get some sort of big reveal in his lifetime. Um, so that's pretty ambitious for someone like that to say. But again, Joe never says that what he saw was alien or extraterrestrial. Um, right. Like you said, it could be some sort of natural phenomena. It could be high strangeness, paranormal. Um, but it definitely changed his life and the way he's lived his life after. Hmm. You also do an interesting thing in the book in one of the chapters about where you talk to people that are either current military personnel at the time of their experiences or former military personnel. Mm -hmm. And uh, why did you pick um, those people to focus on? And then also what's, what's – uh, I think the story that I picked out was Chris Balecki's story. It's the one I found really interesting. Yeah. Um. So I – you know, some of the best UFO reports we have out there are from military personnel. And we, we have to put some sort of credence into that. These people, they are trained to know what are in our skies, um, you know, if they're strictly Air Force or, or whatnot. Um, they are able to deduce things much more easily than the uh, everyday civilian. Um, it is their job to be detailed. Um analyze things assess the situation um so i wanted to i wanted to give that a chapter focus on military witnesses or retired military um either or uh so the story you're referring to happened to chris balecki um who was in the navy and it was in 1972 when he was traveling to florida um to start a new job in a naval communication center and he had a very uh i i like to relate it to close encounters the movie um sort of like that event where mm -hmm. he was in his car he's driving he sees this thing behind him he thinks it's headlights from another car and then the things start raising up behind him um so clearly this isn't a car um yeah, you know, that famous scene where Richard Dreyfus is trying to wave it off yeah. to, to pass him. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, you know, as as Chris is recalling this, I'm like, oh, this sounds so much like Close Encounters. Um, but, you know, I know Chris. I've met him in person. I've known him my whole life. And I know that what he's telling me um, 
was genuine. Um, and again, like why come forward with something like this and ruin the credibility you've built your entire life? I mean, this guy was given an award by President Bush at one point. So, uh, mm. um, you know, your your th- your own thoughts aside on Bush, uh, mine too. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty high praise, in my opinion. Um, so I took what he said with the utmost sincerity. Um, <clears throat> so Chris sees these lights raise up and start to pass his car. So he pulls over, freaks out. He gets out to see what it is. And he just sees this like dome shaped craft floating in this field. Um, so what, what do you think at this point? You know, he, um, he gets back in his car and, uh, tries to drive away, but the car won't start again. We've seen this many times before where, uh, aerial phenomena will have an effect on vehicles engines shut down um radios go off um pretty freaky in my opinion um so as you know the thing finally disappears out of sight and his car restarts um so he just jets it dude he hauls ass to where he's gotta go and the first thing he does is go to a bar and tips back a beer um i you know if I could have done that at 12 years old, I would have. Um, and he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't talk about it for years, you know? Even in the Navy, like, these things are not talked about. You see it, yeah. you don't talk about it. Um, but he's retired now, and he was willing to tell me about it. And it had a lasting impression on him. Again, you know, I remember growing up and hearing him say every now and again, Oh, I... UFOs, yeah, those I, I'm, I believe in those, and I never really pressed him on that until I sat down with him and got the full, the full story, uh, which mm. is in the book. And yeah, it's had a la- lasting impact on him. It's affected his own core beliefs, both religiously, spiritually, um, what might possibly be out there, and everything in between, man. Yeah, it's 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 always interesting when you interview someone that is um, a public official that has an experience like this because mm-hmm. I think people are more willing to trust those people. Yeah. Uh, we talked about a case, a uh, poltergeist case on our show with a couple – two of our guests and talking about um, this particular poltergeist case was actually witnessed by a policeman and some firefighters and uh, people at a – workers at a prison. So it just adds that air of validity to this, to these events that these things actually happen. Yeah, yeah, the, the, exactly, man. Um, that's a good, a good example of that. Um, in the UFO realm, we've got something like Fife Simonton, who was the governor of Arizona at the time of the Phoenix Lights incident. Right, right. You know, he didn't. This was it. after he. Yeah, this was after he uh, <clears throat> poked a little fun at it with a guy dressed up as an alien. Yep. Yeah. And then came forward after he was out of office and said, I definitely saw that that night. And whatever it was, you know, he was a he he knew he was he was in the Air Force. I believe he was in the Air Force. Um, he was military. I know that for sure. And he said, like, what I saw that night defied anything that we could have made. Um, so, again, man, when these it wasn't, wasn't flares was not flares, uh, not saying it was alien, but it was alien. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, stuff like that where officials come forward, that really interests me most. So that's why I wanted to focus on these four men in that military chapter for sure. 
Sure. Was there another story from that that, uh, that, that interests you as far as the military? Um, the other one that really struck me happened to a guy named Kevin who had kind of one of these orb-like experiences. Uh, this is back in 1997 uh, in Panama City Beach. And he his cable went out one night, so he went out to the cable, uh, you know, the the cable box outside to try to fix it. And he sees this green ball of light just floating ominously in the sky. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's just, he's not a dumb guy. He's like, Oh, that, that might be ball lightning. He starts using everything he can in his mind to make sense of what's happening. Um, or maybe he's really tired and he's imagining it. So he goes inside, he's living it with his mom at the time who was, um, who is sick and he <laughs> he rips her out of bed and makes her come outside to see this thing <laughs> you know and she herself is staring up at this thing and just saying holy shit you know i'm seeing this um so kevin he watches the thing as it just stands stationary and then shoots up into the sky and disappears and we're talking like in the blink of an eye so what conventional sort of aircraft could do something like that uh we don't know maybe there is something out there but what he witnessed no human being could physically live through if it were to make that sort of maneuver Um, right you know what i mean right uh so kevin he's working at a golf course at the time so the next day he tells one of his uh, co-workers and the guy thinks he's crazy um, so Kevin decides not to talk about it anymore a few days later that same co-worker comes up to him and he tells him you know holy shit man that thing you saw um, over 800 other people reported it um, mm. so you know there's cooperation right there that whatever he saw actually happened and other people saw it too um, and this again man opened him up made him think that there was more out there than he originally thought and uh, made him start looking in the skies. Uh, what, what a lot of the times these events, they make people finally look up, get off their cell phones, stop looking at, you know, who's trashing who on Facebook now <laughs> um, and look up and see what's possible out there. Um, yeah. I've often wondered if the sightings of UFOs have gone down since everybody's been glued to their phones, you know, I could be right above you and you're sitting there on your phone. A lot of people <laughs> do think that, man. That's so true. Uh, yeah. Well, it, from here on out, the stories in the book get a little start to get a little stranger. And this is one that really struck me. I, I This was interesting was the Scott Santa story about the drive in theater. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of my favorites, actually. Um so Scott actually contacted me a while back um, about just talking about his experience. So he sent me this voicemail, and oh my god, dude. I was glued to it for like a day, listening to it over and over again. Um, so yeah, Scott's a retired radio man, first class for the Coast Guard, and a uh, also a retired postal service worker. And uh, this event happened to him back in 74 uh, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. He's at a drive-in movie theater with a friend of his, you know, they're, they're out, it's the weekend, they're trying to score some chicks, whatever, and um, he, he and his friend, they're just sitting there waiting for the movie to start, and they see behind the movie screen this object 
coming from the distance. And it starts coasting towards the parking lot where all the cars are. And um, Scott said it was solid black. It was chevron shaped and it made no noise. Again, we see this so often with these triangle and chevron shaped craft. Um, he also said that it was massive from tip to tip. It covered the entire parking lot. Um, so, you know, naturally he gets out of the car to, and watches this thing. He thinks maybe they're in danger and everyone else starts getting out of their cars. Some people are freaking out. Um, they want to start their cars to leave. But nobody's cars would start. So again, we have the same sort of anomaly happening. Um, so at this point, it's directly above him. And Scott remembers feeling like this kind of like time slowed down. Um, everything became hazy and like a sort of like a fishbowl, you know, like echoey and the air is thick. And, and then it suddenly returns to normal and the craft floats away. Um, but... You know what, dude, what, what was weirdest about this um, was not the event itself, but after the thing disappeared, Scott goes to use the restroom, which um, I don't blame him, and nobody in the whole drive-in theater is talking about what just happened. They're all just, like, dazed, and they, they're just, like, waiting in line for food or for the bathroom. And right. And Scott can't remember anything that just happened. He he and his friend, they they go back in the car, they watch the movie, they start the car, and then they leave. They don't talk about it. Um, ah, so this really struck me. So it was some years later when he tripped upon a UFO book in his store, and that was all it need all he needed, man. That was the trigger. The memories just started pouring in about what happened that night. And he remembered everything. You know, the air was super thick, the way the thing floated. And, um, but, you know, everyone who witnessed it that night, they all seemed to have some sort of instant amnesia. Like it happened and then they forgot about it. And that really, really tore him apart. He didn't know why, you know, such a dramatic thing happened and no one did anything about it. And that they all sort of forgot about it. Scared the crap out of him. Um, so. And he, and he felt like that people just kind of stopped where they were as they watched this thing and everybody was was silent and yeah. everybody's head was was turned towards the sky to see this but yet no one talked about it afterwards exactly dude it's almost like you called a timeout the thing happened and then you call time in and everything goes back to normal everything starts up again yeah. that's that is bizarre it's so bizarre um so you know to this day He's still trying to find that friend who could corroborate the story with him. Um, right. I looked into it. I, you know, I looked for UFO sightings at that time in that area. Um, I was able to find some stuff, but that drive-in theater is long gone at this point. Um, sure. There's scant information about it because, you know, I wanted to do some research with these stories before bringing to me. Um, I didn't take them just at face value. Um, I believed them, but I, I had, you know, you got to do your research. Um, so Scott, he still struggles with if what he saw was planned or completely happenstance because this thing was so low, so blatant that almost like it was meant to happen. You know, like they were chosen to see that that night, all the people that were there. Um, so I'm still to this day hoping someone in Ohio will come forward to talk about this event, to corroborate it. Uh, we'll see. But 
Scott has since become a really good friend, and uh, I can't help but think that he truly experienced something extraordinary that night. Wow, that, that is that is interesting. That's one of the most interesting stories I think I've heard. Yeah, man, <laughs> that was just one that really struck me. Me just how, too. How bizarre that it that it was, and I've heard some very bizarre things. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> This one uh, was also interesting, and now we're going to get into more of the direct contact with some other, well, I guess, lack of a better term, being here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's uh, Chase Klutzky's story about uh, about the cornfield, and I think that actually was here in Tennessee. Yes, yes, it was, yeah. Um, yeah, um, are you, so you, you're familiar with Chase, then? I am a little bit. I know of her. Um, I know that I think she does some things with KGRA. Yep. Um I think that's uh, Micah knows her as well. Yeah, so Chase is actually, um, you know, back in the day when uh, when Bigelow got his hands into MUFON, uh-huh. Robert Bigelow. Yeah, yeah. so he yeah. he created this star team of rapid response uh, investigators for the Metro UFO Network, where on a dime, like these people had to be ready to go out and investigate something in real time as it was happening. Um, and I think that's fantastic. You know, like we the biggest issue with the UFO encounter being taken seriously by scientists is there's nothing to analyze. There's no repeatability. The thing is there in an instant and it's gone. So what's there to do? You know, um, so the star team uh, chase was in charge of this and she had to be ready to travel, you know, drop everything and go do this. Um so yeah, it was in 2010. Um, she was assigned by the Tennessee chief investigator Max Mitchell from MUFON to investigate this case out in, in <laughs> Tennessee, um, mm-hmm. and everyone in this area were reporting seeing all these lights floating around the sky, um, orbs, uh, triangular formations, saucer shaped. It was like a freaking invasion was going on, man. Um, <laughs> So she she hightails it to Tennessee as quick as she can. Um, and just when she gets there, uh, it's still happening. So the the lead witness to this all who um, has remained remained anonymous up until today, apparently, I've been told two conflicting stories. He's either a uh, a person in office in Tennessee or he is a very well-known uh, celebrity athlete. Um, okay. I, I'm not sure which, but either way, he did not want his name out there. Um, but he was the primary witness to these events. They were happening near his, his home over a cornfield. So, you know, what does he do? He brings Chase and her partner out into this cornfield to experience this. Um, so they go out there, they got their Geiger, Geiger counters, they got all their equipment, and nothing's working, man. The batteries are draining immediately. And we see this a lot in ghost hunting, you know? Um, right, things, right. You just put the batteries in, and that thing just mm-hmm. sucked dry. Um, mm-hmm. This happened out there in the cornfield. So right there, you know, that's, that's bringing the paranormal and UFOs together in some, mm-hmm. some way. Um, so chase what she sees out there is a big triangular craft um and they start like trying to get the equipment going again nothing's working nothing's working and immediately she and the other witness and the part her partner they have this 
weird feeling that they're being watched um, from above and from below. And this immediate sort of threat. So out of nowhere, all three of them impulsively just jet. They dart out of the cornfield. Um, you know, they left some of their equipment out there too. Um, so they're running, they're running, they're running. And then Chase just slams right into the back of the guy. Um, and she gets up, she gets her bearings. She's like, what did, what just happened? And the guy like points in front of him and Chase sort of looks over his shoulder and in the cornfield is a small gray being with big black eyes staring back at them. And we're talking for like a tiny moment and then it just disappears. Um, now all three witnessed this and all three remember it happening. So this wasn't just like one hallucination or one influence on the other witness. All three of them, got back into their truck, drove back to the guy's house, and all remembered seeing the same thing. Um, so here you have Chase Kletsky, the lead investigator for MUFON, now thrown into the middle of a UFO case that she's investigating. And it really affected her, man. She'd never had an experience like that. She's very, very... Um, calculated and um she doesn't debunk cases but she will find every possibility before alien um but when you have a possible et freaking staring you in the face (laughs) what do you do from there man Um, what did she what did she uh how did she describe it uh she described it as are you there yeah i'm here oh okay um she described it as you know small body huge head and she laughs when she recalls it because she's she doesn't see how that big of a head could actually be on a body that small um Hmm. and you know sort of those almond shaped black eyes um the interesting thing she pointed out to me that we don't hear about a lot is that the skin was like translucent like she could almost see through it um now maybe it's some sort of like cloak that these beings use or maybe they're just like <laughs> that much lack of protein in their system i don't know but like she could almost see through the thing you know it's interesting that it comes together with these things like you talked about the draining of the batteries mm-hmm. and a very ghostly like phenomenon and i think sometimes and i've made this point I think many times on the show, probably people are tired of hearing it, but I think it's good to repeat it that sometimes I think that we're dealing with the same kind of phenomenon. We're just dealing with it in, in, in different forms or how it chooses to show itself to us. That is such a good point, man. I mean, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, you yeah. know, what one person yeah. sings is paranormal. Someone might see as angelic, um, it right. it really is all about perception, and I could not agree with you more. A lot well, of these cases um, could be anything. Well, so much of it is uh, when you hear things like, okay, I had an abduction experience or I had a contact experience, and then I started having poltergeist phenomenon in my home. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, now what is this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, why? I, I, I thought I, I was guy, dealing with aliens. <laughs> I had a guy that uh, on the show that Stephen Lachance that he talked about one that he talked about mostly was a violent awning that he had experienced and having this attachment on him. 
And then he talks about in his book about having a UFO experience, seeing something in a field. And he kind of makes the joke of saying that, okay, I just need one phenomenon at a time, one weird phenomenon at a time. But I said to him, I said, I think it's the same thing. I I think it's all the same. I think it's just, like I said, the way we perceive it. Um, Let's get into the abduction stuff because this, I think to me, um, is some of the more is some of the fast really fascinating and interesting stuff and some really scary stories that you have in this book. Uh, let's start off with Brett's story. Can we come visit? Mm. That sounds pleasant. Yeah, <laughs> it's all there in the title, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, Reminds me of the Black Eyed Children. Let us in. Yeah, let us we in. Just want to come. We just want to come in to read. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's all they want. Um, but yeah, man, uh, we could make that. <laughs> we could ask that of these quote unquote alien beings as well. Um, so yeah, uh, Brett, he had this experience when he was five years old. Um, so right there, man, I, I don't even know how he could handle something like that. Um, yeah. He remembers this was in Illinois. He remembers going to bed one night and uh, being woken up by this like really intense bright light. And it's coming from the living room window. Uh, all his family's asleep. Um, no one else is really noticing anything weird going on. Uh, so he gets up, goes, goes downstairs, goes to the window, and um, he pulls back the curtain. And he sees a reflection in the window. But it is not his. It, again, <laughs> is one of these gray aliens as he puts it with big black curious eyes looking back at him so before he could react or do anything he completely blacked out um he wakes up and at this point he sees another bright light and he could feel this structure below it uh like a cold sort of uh metal like thing and he starts looking around And he notices that he's on a table. Everything is, you know, slanted to one side. And he sees these people with surgical masks covering their mouths. So he thinks he's in some sort of uh, doctor's, you know, a hospital of some sort. He's wondering, what the heck happened to me? Um, And he starts screaming for his mom. And uh, soon after he starts screaming for his mom, the doctor's immediately take on a different form and it's the form of what he saw in the reflection in that window um he remembers being taken into this this room and he was put down in a chair and (laughs) they start talking to him um and they start telling him in this like soft monotone voice we're not gonna hurt you we're your friends and He's he's still not feeling too cool about this, you know. Believe they it. always say they always say that they do. Apparently, um, we're here to learn about you. Uh, can we come and visit you from time to time? Um, and then this calming, almost euphoric sensation comes over him, uh, perhaps manipulated onto him, and he tells him, "Yeah, yeah, you can, you can come visit me." Um, you know. Next thing he knows, he wakes up, and oh man, I, I can't even imagine what he must have been thinking at that point. And since then, 
they have come back to visit him time and time and time again. Um, you know, many years later, Brett gets married and he doesn't want to talk about this with his wife. Um, you know, clearly this could be a deal breaker for many people. Um, and the anxiety just starts to really get to him, you know, keeping this all in. And it's making him depressed, man. Like, it's continuing to happen, but he's suppressing this from his life. Um, so he finally tells his wife about it, and she's a little, you know, a little taken back by it all. But then she starts... I don't know how to explain this. She almost subconsciously starts having these experiences with him, or at least mm. witnessing them. Um, ah, just, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely terrifying to think that they could sort of pierce your mind and make someone else experience this with you. Um, or on the flip side, we sometimes hear that some of these people, uh, are taken in the night from their beds, uh, and that the other person in the bed is completely unaware of what is happening, is fast asleep and nothing will wake them up. Um, I remember hearing another story where a guy was looking out his window having a UFO sighting. Meanwhile, his wife, who won't wake up, won't, experience, won't react to anything, the next morning wakes up and said she had an abduction experience in the night. So while he was you know, distracted by this UFO sighting, she's having this abduction experience. Um, mm. Crazy stuff, man. It really is. There's another, uh, another story uh, that you mentioned in the book and that is the uh story of shane who is a a woman Mm -hmm. uh and this is the story of unknown children yes yeah um yeah shane came to me uh late in the game actually with her story um but once i heard it i knew i had to include it um the initial event happened in 1968 uh right outside syracuse new york which is actually my hometown so really yeah Mm. i found that pretty odd pretty cool too um so her and i always had that in common um she saw some lights in the sky uh she was an avid stargazer she had a telescope and at the time her and her boyfriend they witnessed these erratic um lights in the sky making very interesting maneuvers and disappearing um you know and then she started seeing more and more and more um, to the point where <laughs> it was too much. Every time she looked out, she was seeing these lights in the sky and her mother was seeing them too. Uh, so one night, Shane is asleep and there is this incredibly bright light shining upstairs in her bedroom. Um, and her mother sees this as well she's like oh there's got to be an explanation so she calls the air force base the next day they um they say that nothing was out there um everything's fine don't worry about it um but (laughs) later on the mother goes to check on shane one night and she's not in bed so you know what do you do at that point she thinks that her daughter's been kidnapped. She runs outside and she finds Shane just standing outside barefoot, um, just staring up at the sky. Uh, so she ushers her back inside, gets her ready, gets tries to, you know, gets her in the bath and put her back to sleep. And she notices that Shane has these weird markings 
um, across her chest and running down to her navel. Um, so at this point, the mom is just petrified. You know, she thinks, oh, my God, something, you know, hideously wrong happened to my daughter. Um, so uh, mm. at this point, you know, what do you do? Um, they got her checked out. Everything seemed to be okay. But then these experiences kept happening, Adam. She kept having these, uh, quote-unquote, abduction experiences where she'd be put on a craft. They would show her this this almost human-esque, humanoid, let's say, being um, that was clearly an infant and telling her that this is your child, this is your child. And this is much later in life when Shane is now an adult. And she's like, what do you mean, my child? Like, I, I don't have children. Um, and then uh, she, she'd come to after these events, and she started having issues, uh, reproductive issues after this. And the doctors, for the life of them, could not figure out what was going on. Um, and telling her, we don't think you're ever going to be able to have children. And... You know, for someone like Shane, who did want to be a mother eventually, this is possibly the worst news you could ever get. Um, but then these dreams kept happening where she was shown this child from <laughs> from somewhere else. Um, and having this sense that she actually indeed was a mother somehow, some way. Um, she, she met with doctors. Uh, they couldn't explain it. She met with hypnotherapists. They couldn't explain it. Uh, but up until this day, after these experiences, Shane still feels that somewhere out there, somehow, that she is the mother she always wanted to be. And, and this is a phenomenon that is common with alien abductees, isn't it? I mean, this is something that that, that happens a lot. Uh, Dr. David Jacobs is someone we've had on the show, and this has kind of become his specialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read his latest book, uh, but I've read that and The Threat, and that is some scary stuff. It's scary, man. Um, I am very familiar with Jacobs' work. Um, you know, he and Bud Hopkins did incredible work uh, – throughout their time john mack even you know the harvard psychiatrist um looked into this as well this possibility that there is some sort of hybrid hybridization happening um is very common a lot of women say that their their ova is taken or um a lot of men say that sperm was taken um during these experiences and you have to wonder why why is this what they're taking from us um what kind of agenda do they have it's interesting, too, that this same kind of theme exists also in fairy lore and also in some uh, stories about Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we can – a lot of the times these, these uh, skeptics will look at the abduction phenomenon as folklore. Like you just said, we, we, these same events are seen throughout time as different things, whether it's fairies or, um, you know, <laughs> goblins or demons. Mm-hmm. There's always that archetype that we can put to the alien abduction experience. Um, and you have to wonder, what is that? And is that just this generation's version of that? Uh, again, right. same with Bigfoot, too. Um, right. It's very intriguing, and it says a lot about society and the impact that culture has on this phenomenon. 
Yeah, there's something very deep and psychological about this idea of this other coming down and mixing with us. I mean, you even see that in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And we we mentioned earlier, like, putting that perception on these events, whether it's religious or it's uh, cryptid or it's uh, supernatural. Um, you do see it a lot. And like you said, even in the freaking Bible of all things. Right, you, right, yeah, Genesis 6. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to wonder. Same with a lot of UFO sightings that have been reported, um, these very, very old UFO sightings that were also said to have happened in the Bible. Yeah. And, and everything from the Antonio Villas Boas case all the way down to what, the case that you just talked about, this mm-hmm. this whole idea of... Yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff for sure, and you can go about a thousand different directions with it. Let's talk about one more case, and then I want to move on to some other topics with you. Sure. And that is a mother's prayer, and I noticed this is probably I think a popular one that you've been talking about. <laughs> this uh, this is the story I think that really uh, really hit me most. To be honest, man, um, I remember talking to the woman who this happened to patty um over email and then eventually over the phone and uh i cried man after hearing it for the first time because it affected her family so much uh that they didn't speak to each other after um so i guess we could rewind uh this this happened back in 2006 uh when patty was headed outside to walk her dogs uh, this is in Michigan, and she saw a again a triangular craft hovering just above her home. Um, and this happened a couple miles away from Lake Mis- Michigan. And she sees this thing floating in the sky, and she thinks she's seeing things. So she yells for her daughter to come outside, you know, make sure that she's not crazy, and. Uh, So her younger daughter, Jennifer, comes out, and both of them just start to stare at the thing. And it's slowly creeping closer until it's directly above their home. Um, So what I found most interesting about this one was Patty was hearing this, like, low humming sound. So she asks Jennifer if she hears it. And the daughters in the others, you know, right next to her, covering her ears, saying how unbearably loud the noise is. Hmm. So that's pretty interesting to me. I don't know about you, yeah, but uh, two completely different uh perceptions of sound right, happening. Right. Um at the same time. And, and you would think it would be the same. You honestly. would. You would. Uh, yeah. Um but again, like we said earlier these events can affect people differently, even in the moment. Um, yeah. You got to wonder if there's an altered state going on. There yes. Yeah. As well. Kind of like yeah. what Scott experienced. Um, and yeah, like to go even further, Patty starts to feel calm during this and almost like euphoric. And then Jennifer, the daughter, she's freaking out, man. She's terrified. She thinks uh-huh. that they're in danger. So again, you've got a mother and daughter perceiving this thing completely differently. Um, you know, so the triangle, it darts off at breakneck speed, it disappears, and so some time passes, and then the younger daughter, Jessica, she's getting ready for bed one night, you know, brushing her teeth, leaving the bathroom. She's walking down the hallway, and she sees this small figure coming out of uh, the younger 
sister's bedroom. Uh, she assumed it was the sister, but then when it comes into sight, it's clearly not the sister. It is a being about three feet tall, big head, small body, um, and it's got a uh, a robe and a hood on, uh, which is really interesting. We don't hear about that that often, but we do hear about it sometimes. It's freaky as hell. Yeah, dude. It's like a small <laughs> alien monk or something. It's just... Uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. And I, yeah, that that's that that was the part of the story that actually I think struck me the most was the robe thing. And yes, I have heard that before. Mm-hmm. It's just how bizarre. Yeah, a couple of women I spoke to in Canada uh, separately, I might add, uh, recall seeing the same thing. Uh, these small hooded beings. You know why? Why why are they? You know, druid like or monk like? Uh, you do have to wonder. Uh, see, someone would see that, and I think if they were a religious person, they would look at that and say that that's a, that's a demon, yeah, yeah, something demonic. Yeah, boom, right there. You've got the perception and what you're conditioned to believe and or do believe uh, impacting the event as it's happening. Um, right. So yeah, you you so so she freaks out. Okay, small hooded being staring at her. She goes into her bedroom and uh, she hides under the sheets. Uh, she hears her mom's voice coming into the bedroom, so a small sense of relief comes over her. Um, everything must be fine. Um, clearly the mom didn't see this little robe dude in the hallway. Um, so the mom comes in, and she takes, uh, the daughter takes the covers down, and the mom comes in the bedroom, but behind her is the being. <laughs> yeah. It's following behind her, and it's just looking through the room like curious of everything again jessica the daughter she's petrified she can't move she can't say anything mom kisses her on the forehead good night and the being follows the mom out of the room um so uh dude so all three of them at this point have had very <laughs> dramatic experiences you know the mother and daughter with the ufo this daughter with the the being and that then it starts crisscrossing. One daughter starts having nightmares about this being. Um, the other daughter starts seeing it in other places in the house. The mom is having poltergeist activity happening. Um, this is just like everything mm-hmm. you can think of in terms of the stuff that you probably cover on your show was in this one freaking house at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that obviously is going to have a major impact, not on just your psyche, but the family dynamic. Uh, the three of them stopped talking. They 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 became, you know, forgive the pun, they became alienated. They didn't know how to bring it up to one another. They didn't know what you saw as opposed to what I saw. Well, what do we do about it? Let's get a priest. No, let's get, um, let's get the police. Let's do this. Let's do that. Um, to the point where, like, they couldn't even talk to one another. And they started becoming very secluded. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, one daughter slept with a baseball bat next to her at night because she was afraid of these things coming back into her room. Um, But, you know, tying back to this whole idea of religion, uh, that's what this family used to ward off whatever the hell was happening to them. They started praying. And that started to bring them together. Whether one of them thought it was demonic, alien, um supernatural an apparition whatever was going on in this house in all its animatic glory uh they turned to prayer and it worked for them um the activity started to dissipate 
And eventually it stopped altogether for the daughters. Uh, Patty, the mother to this day, still has some experiences that she's told me about. But I caught up with the daughters, you know, some years later. And uh, one of them's in college. Another one's just had a kid. And they're living their life. They don't want to look back at this anymore. They're willing to talk about it with me and in the book. But they, they didn't want to think about it. But Patty, who seemed to be the most inviting to these things in might I remind you had this common euphoric sense during her sighting. So you have to wonder right there why. Uh was whatever happening manipulating her emotions, making her feel like this was all it's all good. It's all cool. Um we're just gonna do this. Don't worry about it. Um yeah, you you also have to wonder too whether there was a and what you just described, that's very much the trickster aspect that Jacques Vallée talks about as well. Absolutely. You know, uh, the – also the, the the part where the mother comes in the room and the little hooded thing is kind of darting in and out between her feet. And you have to wonder if only the daughter could see that at that point and the mother just could not. Right. And then also the other things that you described – Besides the seeing the UFO outside the house, everything else is a perfect description of a violent haunting. People become alienated from each other. They become it's like this this negative energy feeds off feeds off people, and they become testy with each other. They they can almost get violent. They can get obsessed. Um, you know, there's a guy we talked to a long time ago called uh, named Bill Bean, and what you just described. Is almost his story to a T, except he lived in a haunted, a very, very violently haunted house. Wow! And this is very similar to, to that. Wow! Other than a UFO sighting to to start it off. So interesting. It is interesting, <laughs> dude. That that woo! I just got goosebumps. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. I did not include this in the chapter, but also like their phone lines would go dead their cable would go out um and yeah. when the uh the guy came to fix this stuff he saw a freaking ufo over the house hmm. um now i did not have permission to include that in the chapter unfortunately um because i wanted to actually speak to the guy about it um sure but he <laughs> he told them like uh I don't know what the hell is going on in this house, but I did everything I could. And if this stuff's not working, I'm not coming back. You can you can find someone else. Um, so, again, what does that do to that family? It's just like they're, they, they feel like they're completely – this is happening out of their control. They have no control over what is happening. And that can really affect a person, uh, especially a, a mother who – is trying to protect her children and she has no control over what is happening. Um, so thank God they found prayer. And I'm not saying that's the answer for everything, but it was for this family and it has really, really helped them. That was one thing that I, and I know you just, you were on uh, darkness radio with Tim, uh, Dennis not too long ago. And he remarked about the prayer aspect. Uh, that's someone I also need to get on the show is Joe Jordan. Are you familiar with Joe Jordan? Some of his material. He he talks a lot about the people praying when they have these encounters and it makes them go away. Okay. So yes. there's so there, there's definitely that aspect that aspect about it. Uh going back to kind of your personal stories, um I thought this was interesting because it involves someone that we've had on the show, uh Mike Cleland. And yeah. you also uh, another person that we've had on, Michael Carter, 
Okay. <laughs> he's, he's also in the book, um, in which we we talked to him about that experience, which is very interesting. But uh, your experience and Mike is, Mike Cleland is an interesting guy, man. I mean, we had him on back <laughs> to talk about the messengers. I mean, that guy will blow your mind for sure. But it, with all the, the owl stuff, but you had an interesting experience yourself um, staying with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess what did he lives on the Adriandacks or somewhere in the boonies up there in New York State? Yeah, dude, tucked like so far in the woods, <laughs> like nobody can hear you scream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you see Jason out there, Freddy Krueger <laughs> coming after you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that. There is like kind of a weird horror aspect to where Mike lives now. It's like, it's. It's this little inn, so it's like a little comfy, cozy house that he runs with his girlfriend, like a bed and breakfast sort of deal. But right next to it, like 100 feet away, is an abandoned sanatorium. So, oh, dude. So, like, you can only imagine (laughs) the history behind that. Like, and it was for tuberculosis patients and whatnot. Um, So the amount of, like, possible spirits that probably linger there, I I can't even imagine. Um, But, yeah, so in writing the book and researching it, I... All my correspondence was through email, through Skype, through phone. I did meet face-to-face with several individuals, um, but I wanted to be thrown right in the thick of it. I wanted to say, okay, if these people are really having alien abductions or uh, contact with possible uh, non-human intelligence, like, I want to I I dive into that. So I contacted Mike, and I was like, hey, dude. I'd love to come visit you because I know you've had some experiences. Um, you're still you're still trying to unravel what has happened to you. Um, what would you think if I came out there and just for like a weekend or something? And what does he say? Uh, the man of synchronicity, as Mike Cleland is. Uh, oh, funny you should mention that, Ryan. I was thinking of getting a group of experiencers together for a weekend. <laughs> so he kind of just threw this right into my lap, dude. It was like the, yeah. the Hail Mary pass. Um, so I did. I, I, I took him up on it. Uh, and I went with my girlfriend for a weekend where we would be with um, several other experiencers. And we just we'd hang out, um, and we'd hear each other's stories, uh, whether they came organically or uh, you know if there was some sort of pressing on the issue, uh, we'd deal with that when we got to it. Um, so, yeah, the first night um, we were all very cordial. We had a nice dinner, um, and Mike starts talking about all his experiences with synchronicity and the owls, and like you know, it's absolutely fascinating Um, mike is tapped into something within ufology and outside of ufology that uh no one else truly has and uh (laughs) that no one would ever think about in a thousand years except for him i think (laughs) exactly and that's the that's a trailblazer right there man um and i love talking to mike uh he's become a really good friend um so (sighs) what struck me most this weekend was a another woman that we met there uh rachel who had some very terrifying experiences with abductions. Um, Again, sort of gray beings. She remembered one night feeling like she was floating above her bed and that these beings, 
I don't know how to explain this. Um, they were rearranging her organs within her. Um, and when she told me that, I, I, I just sort of like quivered. Like, what does that mean? How does it feel to have your organs moved around inside of you? Again, uh, there is this, there is a, there is a parallel. And again, I'll bring this up. Please do. That the ayahuasca experience, when people will say that they will, they are torn apart by these beings and re-put back together. And when I read that in, in your book, I, that's immediately what I thought about. <laughs> that's really interesting, man. Yeah. Especially with the shamanic stuff that comes up later in that chapter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's, there There we go, synchronicity at its best. Um, But yeah, I, I, so that stuck with me vividly, and that um, she would, she couldn't sleep. And she didn't want to go to sleep because whether this was happening in some dreamlike state, this subconscious or really happening, um, she did not want to experience it. It was dark. It was scary. And it was extremely intrusive. <laughs> and you can't get more intrusive than your organs being moved around inside of you, <laughs> in, my, in my opinion. Um, so, dude, she was depressed. She um, she had nowhere to turn. No one would listen to her. Um and when she recalled the story when we were all together, um, it hit me. She was crying. She was bawling her eyes out. And what struck with me most was that fear. Uh, she was living her life in fear every day, every moment. She slept with the lights on, um, always needed someone around to be there with her so that these beings would not come back. Uh, so that really struck, struck me. Um, so that night, you know, after I'd heard all of this, I'm going to bed and I'm in bed. My girlfriend's on the side of me. She's fast asleep. And I start hearing like this tapping on the window outside. And mind you, I'm two floors up. Uh, so no one's like outside just, you know, messing around with me unless they climbed the freaking house. Um, and I look underneath the door and I see shadows going by. Um, there was a cat in the house. So I'm like, oh, it's spazzy. It's Mike's cat. Uh, sure. every, everything's fine. Everything's cool. Um, so I open the door and nothing's there. Nothing. Uh, cat's not there. Um, little did I remember that they actually left the cat downstairs uh, with the door locked because I'm severely allergic. And Mike was nice enough to adhere to my request and not have the cat upstairs. Um, so it wasn't that. No one else was in the room near us. Uh, so I closed the door and it happens again. I start seeing these shadows move underneath the faint light um, coming from underneath the door. So I'm freaking out at this point, man. Um, whether or not it was influenced by the story that Rachel had told or um, or the entire weekend itself, I really thought I was about to have an abduction experience and or contact. Uh, the tapping progressively gets worse on the window um and i i have never felt that immense fear in my life so i turn to my partner jane in bed try to wake her up she's not waking up so dude i'm oh i'm having the prototypical experience and it right. it all starts to flood over me like have i gotten so embedded in this this culture of ufo phenomena or these stories we hear that it's starting to either uh manifest itself into an actual event or am i just 
over my head with it, you know? Um, and it, I can tell you right now, it was one of the scariest moments in my life. I didn't know what to do. And that's when I really begin to empathize with Rachel. Like, you're helpless. And fear takes over. And you're so vulnerable. Um, you know, so I had the courage to finally, um, and I use the word courage very loosely, uh, to open the window and look out. And nothing there. Nothing. Um, you know, I thought maybe it was branches hitting the window. No tree in sight. Um, it wasn't snowing out, so it wasn't snow hitting the window. Uh, but whatever it was, man, it was messing with me. Uh, it was messing with my mind. And it only made me finally fear, feel that fear that so many of these experiencers do. Um, to this day, I don't know what it was. Uh, I don't recall having any sort of missing time um but yeah like i said later that weekend a shaman came to visit us and it was pretty cool man i i, I was never into that sort of thing uh i didn't know much about it but mm -hmm. rachel recalled her story to him and he told her let go of the fear you need to be in control of what's happening whether you think this is demonic whether you think it's um Alien, whatever it is, it's using you as a vessel to try to get to you. Don't let that happen. Like, get rid of the fear and see what happens from there. And, dude, it looked – it literally looked like a huge burden and weight had been lifted off her shoulders. And that could explain the power of, the power of prayer. Not that I don't believe that there's anything supernatural, but uh, it, it could explain that you are taking control of, of this – experience yeah man and, and and i think also to sum up with these experiences that i think it's really that in some ways yeah we can talk about and say that it's an alien experience but i think in many ways and i've come to the conclusion ryan that i think this is a very human experience as well i think this has been with us for as long as we've been around mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, man. I mean, you, there's my subtitle right there. Uh, it's a human approach to an alien phenomenon. But when we really look at it, this is about us. It's putting that mirror up to ourselves. Um, everything to do with UFOs or aliens ultimately comes back around to us. What do we want from this phenomenon? You know, like, what is it saying about us? The impact it's having on us. What does that right. say? Um, it right. is. It is a human experience. Uh, I, I cannot agree with you more. Um, now, whether or not, hu uh, excuse me, whether or not a non-human intelligence has anything to do with that, we don't know. And I'm not here to say I know the answers. You know, I I reported these people's stories. I reported my own and what they had to say about it. And there is nothing more human than the emotion that an event can have on somebody. Yeah, yeah, very well put. Uh. In the, we're kind of running out of time, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on something. We uh, a couple of shows ago we had uh, Chris Wolford on, and we talked about Tom DeLong. Mm. Uh, what's kind of your thoughts on what's going on with him? Uh, first off, I listened to that interview, and I want to say uh, Chris is one of the most uh, well-read people on this topic right now. <laughs> um, I was blown away by his knowledge on what's going on, um, and it makes me feel really stupid, Adam. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Now, I've been following DeLong's work for a while, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
when he first came on the UFO scene, you know, people were hesitant, but it is so obvious that this guy has done his homework. Um, that being said, when his first book, The Secret Machines, came out, um, the quote-unquote fiction book, uh, that's when I started getting a little weary about what he was really out to do. Um, why would you say that you have information that was given to you by the government or by the military intelligence agency um, and put it in a fictional form? Um, we like to, in the UFO field, call this misinformation. <laughs> you know, yeah, putting... yeah, I think people are very leery, especially... Um, as I mentioned in that interview, and I've mentioned several times about um, uh, if you've seen the movie Mirage Men, yes. I think you would be very leery about it. Yep. Uh, I, I'm very familiar with Mirage Men. And, you know, at times here in the UFO field, we are our greatest enemies. Um, and you have to wonder what, A, what DeLong's agenda actually is, and B, what those in power that are giving him this information want. Um, what I found most fascinating about what Chris had to say is that. Things like this have happened before. Uh, people have been used to filter out false information. Um, uh, I know Chris brought up a really prominent one. Um, the name is escaping me on who was involved. Um, but this happened to Linda Moulton Howe back in the yeah. early 90s. You know, yeah. She was sat down and told things, and she was set, they said, you're going to be the harbinger of the information. We want you to get it out there. Yeah. And lo and behold, it was all a lie. Um, and, and you know what's funny about what she was told uh, is that it, 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 it in many ways um, corresponds to what Larry Warren and those guys were told in the Rendlesham case. Totally. Absolutely, man. Like yep. that is a great example of it. Like when you you give these – I've actually brought that up with Peter. <laughs> oh, have you? Yeah. yeah. Who knows Rendlesham more than anyone, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, great example for sure. Um, but yeah, my whole thing on DeLong is – kind of where we're at in this country in general right now i just want to wait and see what happens um he's yeah. got a non-fiction book coming out he's got a documentary coming out with podesta of all people involved um and i want to hear what he has to say i was i was pretty critical and very anti delong when that first fictional book came out um and I'm a huge Blink fan. I always was. Um, you know, after Green Day, you know, <laughs> all I listened to was Blink. And um, uh. but in, you know, I've talked on and off with Chris the last couple weeks about everything that's coming forward with DeLong. And uh, he's really opened my eyes to, you know, both ends of it, uh, both that Tom might be being played and that he actually has some very valuable information to get out there. So all we can do at this point, man, is wait and see what he brings forward. Um, yeah. You know, I know he's not a big ETH person in terms of it right. actually being extraterrestrial. Right. So, That's what I find most interesting yeah. about him. Yeah, so show us the yeah. antithesis of that, Tom. That's all I want to know. Like, what yeah. information do you have that I can say, okay, this is not, this is all man-made. Um We'll see, man. I'm I'm excited. I'm actually excited to see what he brings forward. And Peter Lavenda being involved as well. I think that's fascinating. Oh yeah. Have you ever met him? Because I think he lives out in New York City. I'm, not that there's like not eight million people yeah, right. there, but you know, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, once you actually get here, it's a pretty small world. Um, but I've never met Peter in person, but I follow his work religiously. Um, his attention to detail and his research is amazing so that alone that he is involved in the second book gives me 
and the fact that there's a forward by Jacques Vallée um, mm-hmm. gives me a lot of hope that this could actually be something. Um, this is not going to be disclosure by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a step forward. And uh, whether believers in the UFO camp like it or not, it might not be the answers we we always hoped for, but they will be answers right. nonetheless. Right. Well, Ryan, uh, we are out of time, but I uh, really thank you for coming on. But before we, I let you go, uh, when we end the interview, where can people get the book? And also tell us a little bit about Into the Fray. Oh, sure, man. Yeah. Um, so Into the Fray is a podcast I host, co-host weekly with um, Shannon Legro and Sam Sheeran. Uh, we cover all types of stuff, cryptids, supernatural, UFOs, true crimes. Um, so, yeah, you can find that at IntoTheFrayRadio.com. Uh, I really get to stretch my muscles with that one, so I love it. Um, and then Somewhere in the Skies, the book can be found at Richard Dolan Press. Uh, it's on Amazon, paperback, ebook. Or if your listeners want to contact me, I'm at SomewhereInTheSkies.com. And you can also be reached on Facebook as well. Absolutely, man. I'm on there every day. <laughs> and um, the I, I, I like the Into the Fray, um, the insignia that you have, the little symbol. Oh. It's very Joy Division, very Bauhausy. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you, you caught that, man. Yeah, yeah, Sam Sheeran, our co-host, designed that. Um, and there's even a little X-Files homage in there if you really yeah. look closely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, thank you so much. I mean, this has been an awesome interview. I'm glad we got to do it. And stay on the line for us. But I'm going to close the show out now, guys. Uh, as I said before in the intro, next week, next time we're going to be taking a two-week break. And we are, but when we come back, we're going to have Walter Bosley talking about his new book, which I know the title now. It's called Shimmering Light. Just got it today, actually, from him, and I'm going to be reading it. So uh, thank you so much, guys, and we will be back in a couple of weeks on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.